as John continues on in his epistle, he follows up his talk that we looked at a couple of weeks ago about testing the spirits by addressing the issue of love. And obviously, as you read this epistle, you see that love is an incredibly important theme within John's letter. In fact, 46 times do we find the word for agape either in noun or verb form in this letter. So love is a really, really big deal. But up to this point, John has been primarily speaking of love in an ethical sense. But in this passage today, he actually defines what love is. Think of it like this. It's one thing to say to someone, I love you. It's another thing to explain why you love them. And this is where the why comes in, in John's letter. Up to this point, he has been challenging the true Christians to resist false teaching and to faithfully love one another. But now we're going to find out why they should love one another and what it means biblically to love one another. So as we work our way through this text today, we're going to learn three things. Number one, the source and origin of our love. It's God. The act of love. It's Jesus. And the effect of love. Sanctification. So the source and origin of our love, God. The act of love, Jesus. And the effect of love, our sanctification. If you look at this passage, the very beginning it says, Let us love one another. This is an imperative. No, it's not saying you must love one another. But nevertheless, it is saying we as Christians are to love one another. The love that Christians are to display towards one another is not something that we came up with. Love is not original to us, but it is original to God. The text says, for love is from God. God is love. Love describes God, therefore love should describe all followers of Jesus. In Galatians 5, when Paul is listing out the fruit of the Spirit in that great passage, the very first one he mentions is that of love. And John is using, in this passage, love to indicate who is in fact a follower of Jesus and who is not a follower of Jesus. He says, whoever has been born of God... And knows God. So an easy and basic way that we as Christians demonstrate that we know God and that we love God is actually through the commitment that we make to the body of Christ. It's one of the most tangible and basic ways that we demonstrate that we are in fact in Christ. What better and safer place is there than the body of Christ to learn how to love people that are different from us? Now, I could take a poll this morning and ask you, how many of you in this room love every single thing about this church? Every minute detail, everything that we do, you are completely satisfied 100% across the board with everything that we do. All of you are just aggressively nodding your heads no right now. You're actually not. 
But there is no better place to learn how to be brothers and sisters in Christ together than in the context of a local church where, for many of us, if we're being honest, outside of this body, we might not even spend that much time together. We have different hobbies. We have different interests. We read different books. We listen to different music. We root for different sports teams. All of these things play into our personalities, who God has designed us to be. But what the church does is it gathers people from all different backgrounds, all different preferences, all different opinions. And God says, you're going to love one another. One of the basic ways that God stretches his children into learning how to live life together with people that are not like them is through the commitment that you make to be a part of a local church. I didn't become a member at First Baptist Dothan, much less become the pastor here, because I automatically affirm 100% of everything that this church is about. No, I came here because God called me here. And he wants to teach me what it's like to be in relationship with people that might not think exactly the same way that I do on every single issue out there. I would venture to guess that many of you did not join this church because everything fit perfectly exactly the way that you wanted it to. You probably joined because the Lord was leading you to this congregation, calling you to be a part of of this body. So, I'm sure there are elements that all of us wish could be different, even though we're all a part of this church. I'm sure some of you wish the preaching was better. I'm sure some of you wish the pastors that God has entrusted to this church were better. I'm sure some of you wish the building looked differently. The ministries that we operate were different. The missionary partners that we support were different or more or less or any number of things that we could all sit down together this afternoon and make a list of all the things that we wish were better about this church. And yet, when God calls people to join a local church, that's not what he calls us to do. He calls us to learn how to cooperate together, how to love one another, how to be in fellowship with one another, even when we don't get everything that we want. That's what it means to be a part of a family. Take this illustration of the body of Christ as a family and transfer it to your biological family. You don't get everything that you want in your children or in your grandchildren or even with your spouse. There's always a give and take. There's always sacrifices that have to be made for the betterment of the family. So when we gather in this room every single Sunday for the corporate gathering, we're all giving up something that perhaps we wish was different. Because that's what sacrifice is. That's what Jesus teaches us. To lay down our lives, to lay down our preferences for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Surely you're not here this morning because you think First Baptist Dothan is a perfect church. And by the end of the sermon, you'll realize it is not. We all gather together, warts and all, to faithfully proclaim that Jesus died for sinners. That is what 
connects us together. So in many ways, having preferences and having opinions, while good, is a way for God to teach us how to be around people that maybe we wouldn't normally be around. In God's wisdom and in God's providence, he knew that one of the ways he could stretch us is to put us together. But think about it for a moment. The world around us is not structured this way. Cable news is targeting a specific demographic of people. That's what they're targeting. They want to weed out everyone who does not think the way that certain news channel thinks. This is not how it works in the body of Christ. We gather from birth all the way to 102 years old in this church. Many generations, many preferences, many opinions, many political views, all united by one Christ. There is unity in our diversity as a church. John gives the opposite perspective as he keeps moving on in this passage. So, if you love God, you've been born of God, and you know God, one of the easiest ways to demonstrate that is your commitment to the local church. In verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In the context of this letter, we've been working through this letter since January now. In the context of the letter, the false teachers were attempting to persuade the true Christians to leave the church and to abandon orthodox teaching that Jesus was God in the flesh and that once you are in Christ, you no longer sin. Now, the application for us would be that if any Christian that we know is trying to convince us that the church doesn't matter or that the church is not important or not essential even to your spiritual growth, if someone were to communicate those types of things to you, that would actually be a sign that they don't love you. They may think they're loving you, but biblically speaking, anyone who tries to pull you away from the body of Christ. And I don't just mean First Baptist Dothan. I mean any Christian that would tell you that across the board the church is dangerous. The church is not helpful. Just, just make it about your individual Bible and God. Anyone who is promoting that type of what I would consider to be false teaching is not loving towards you. It is not helpful. That is what John is telling these believers here. Do not listen to these false teachers who are trying to get you to leave the church to come and join a, a better group of Christians, ones that are more enlightened, ones that are more knowledgeable. John is saying, they don't love you. What an opportunity we have even tonight when we meet at 5 o'clock in this room, sales pitch, of course, to gather as a church family and hear about all the various ways that God is working in our church through our various ministries, through our mission trips that just came back within the last couple of weeks. All of us gathering together comprised of different ages, different demographics, different socioeconomic stances, different political views, but we all gather at 5 o'clock tonight not to celebrate anything about us, but to celebrate how Christ is at work within this body. 
That, brothers and sisters, is what unifies us. Jesus is what unifies us together. Number two, we see not only that the source and origin of our love is God himself, that's who he is, the act of love is demonstrated through Jesus. So we have the perfect example of love in Jesus himself. John says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So up to this point, love has been more generic. It has been more vague. Now, John makes it concrete. He objectifies love here. And he does it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrated what love looks like when he came to live amongst sinners like you and me. So when we read the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, the authors at this point, they're not giving us theories of what love could look like. They are giving us proof of what love did look like in the person of Christ. Jesus lived among us. It's historical. It's verifiable. You could take a Christian. You could take a non-Christian. You could take an atheist. You could take an agnostic. You could take a skeptic. Have a whole panel of them. All of them will affirm that Jesus did in fact come and live on this earth. They will affirm that he taught. They will affirm that he performed miracles. They will even all affirm that historically we know he was crucified. All of those things, Christians, non-Christians, we're all in agreement on that. So, why did God send his son into the world? John gives us the answer. So that we might live through him. Spiritually speaking, you cannot live apart from Christ. Paul explains this in Romans 5, in verse 17. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, that would be Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have the gift of eternal life. Without Jesus, we have the punishment of eternal death. If Jesus does not come into the world, do not miss this. If Jesus did not come in the flesh to live among us, we have no crucifixion, we have no perfect sacrifice, no shedding of blood, no forgiveness of sin, no justification, no resurrection, and God's justice is then poured out on unrepentant sinners without any hope for reprieve. But because Jesus did come and do all of those things, the wrath of God, as we sang this morning, has been turned away from us and poured out on Christ in our place. Before the foundation of the world, in God's perfect plan, he knew he would send Jesus. It's not uncommon at all for some people to think that Jesus was some sort of plan B. That God had this perfect plan in Genesis 1-3. to Once Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, 
Jesus was the backup plan, some people think. That is not true. Before the foundation of the world, God knew that Jesus would have to come and pay the penalty and be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. God didn't send Jesus because humanity had been this great example of morality. Here's how I know this. If you go and you do a deep dive of the book of Genesis, and you read Genesis 1 and 2 about the creation account, and then you get to Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve disobey God. They doubt that God knows what's best for them. They eat of the fruit that God commanded them not to. From Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11. So you have the fall in Genesis 3, Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, the corruption in the world in Genesis 5, the flood in Genesis 6, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where man is building a tower to be God, to be like God. All of Genesis 3 through 11, Moses is communicating to us a downward spiral into more and more immorality, more and more wickedness, more and more sin. So that's how Genesis 11 ends. Could it possibly get any worse for mankind? And then Genesis 12, God chooses Abram. I don't want you to miss this. Because the whole point of Genesis 12 is to show you that in Genesis 3 through 11, man was wicked, evil, immoral. Genesis 12 should not be if we're thinking in human standards, God choosing a people for himself based on the way they behaved in Genesis 3 through 11. And yet in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, and here's what he tells him. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is nothing in Genesis 3 through 11 that would lead us to the conclusion that what we read in Genesis 12 had anything to do with what humanity did. What Genesis 12 communicates to us is the all-important concept of grace. Of God giving us what we don't deserve anyone who is in Christ this morning you are a follower of Jesus by God's grace through faith in Christ alone the ultimate act of love is God sending Jesus to be as John says the propitiation for our sins Now, we have studied propitiation in this letter. It's not the first time John mentions it. He mentions it all the way back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Propitiation is, by definition, averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. That's what that heavy theological word means. Propitiation is averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. What is the gift brought before God? It's certainly not us. It's certainly not anything we contribute. The gift that God offers is the gift of his son. Anytime 
this picture of God's wrath comes up, it's almost always viewed negatively. Thus, as we've said, propitiation has been watered down over the years, even within evangelical circles. There are some that don't like the word propitiation, so they try to use other words in its place. But propitiation is crucial to our understanding of the gospel. Here's what one theologian says. The Christian doctrine of propitiation is not that of our trying to get God to love and forgive us by placating him by a sacrifice that we take the initiative to bring to him. No, not at all. Instead, God takes the initiative toward us in love. Even though we have betrayed him and rebelled against him and provides for us precisely the propitiation we need. So, track with me here. God is the one who sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. How will God's wrath be turned away? By God sending Jesus to turn away God's wrath through his sacrificial death on the cross. The cross is the most powerful example of the love of God. Because it's God himself who in the person of his son averted his own wrath through his own death so that we might be reconciled to God. It's only when we properly understand the beauty of the atonement that we can do what John goes on to say in verse 11. When he says, beloved, if God so loved us. Now that's conditional. Well, we have just demonstrated that God did in fact love us through the death of his son. That is the proof that God loves us. So you might doubt this morning in your feelings or perhaps even in your mind that God loves you. That's not uncommon for us to doubt whether or not God loves us in our hearts and in our minds. But here's what you need to remember. It doesn't really matter what your mind tells you or what your heart tells you. Go to God's word. It tells you God loves you. And he demonstrated his love by sending Jesus. Your heart and your mind, as the scriptures regularly tell us, betray us. They lead us to believe things that do not align objectively with what the truth of God's word teaches. So, go to the text when you begin to doubt God's love for you. Don't go to your feelings. Don't go to your mind. Open up the Bible and read of God's love for you demonstrated in the sending of his son. So, if God so loved us, he does. Therefore, what, John says, we also ought to love one another. Now, within the context of 1 John, this is clearly written to Christians about loving other Christians. However, we would be foolish to not apply this text to non-Christians as well. We are called not only to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that application should extend outside of the walls of the church. 
So the question for us is, all right, say we're doing good on loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. How then are we loving those who are not in Christ, who are not a part of our church? How are we loving people that are not Christians? Our community is full of opportunities to serve and share and display the love of Christ. So our church, we don't really have to reinvent the wheel here. There are many, many organizations in our town, many that we support, that are doing phenomenal work. We support, of course, partners like the Alabama Baptist Children's Home, Love in Action, The Ark, The Harbor, Wiregrass Hope Group, Southeast Alabama Ministry Center, Time Youth Dothan, Dothan Rescue Mission, all of these organizations that we partner with who are loving people in our community, many of whom might not know Christ. So what do we do? Well, one of the easiest things to do is make a commitment to partner with many of these local organizations. There's really no need for us to reinvent the wheel when all of these organizations that we work with are equipped, and in many cases, better equipped to handle the needs. We should simply come alongside of them and support them and learn what it's like to walk in another person's shoes by serving and being connected to these ministries. You don't need anyone's opinion or anyone's, excuse me, you don't need anyone's permission to go and be involved in the community. You don't need any permission to go and do outreach. You don't need any permission to go and share the gospel with lost people you know. That doesn't have to be something that is structured by the church. It is the basic command of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So go out into the community and love people the way Jesus commands us to. That core value on the top right corner of your bulletin, the last one that says impact your world, that's what that means. That you would leave this place and make an impact, not in any type of like self-help way or prosperity way, but that you would make an impact through the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever it is he has you Monday through Saturday, in your office, on the ball field, at the gym that you work out at, in your neighborhood. Impact your world by getting to know people that are not Christians, loving them, inviting them to church. If they're not comfortable coming to church, inviting them to open up God's word and study it with you. That's what it means. To impact your world. The reason we do that is because the initial example given to us was Jesus himself. Number three. So the source and origin of our love, it's God himself. That's who he is at his core. The act of love, best demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus. Now the effect of love on us is our sanctification. Look at what John says in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now this idea that no one has seen God, the concept of the invisibility of God 
is a really important theme in John's gospel. In John 1.18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 5.37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. John 6.46, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So John makes it clear in his gospel and he reaffirms it in his epistle that no one has seen God. So, follow the logic. If no one has seen God, then people must... This thing's really uh, messing up today. Then people must see God through how his people love one another. If God is invisible, which he is... The way people come to see God, and I put that in quotes, or to know God oftentimes is through the way God's people act. Not only towards one another, but towards lost people. So the question is, how then are we practically loving one another so that a lost world could see that the people, at least at our local church, really love God? And they demonstrate it by the way that they care for one another. So how does that practically look? Well, in our context, it would look like this. Older women pouring into younger women. Coming alongside of them. Walking with them as they navigate the seasons of life that perhaps you have already navigated. It would look like younger women not isolating themselves only by people their own age, but seeking to learn from the wisdom of older sisters in Christ who have been faithfully following the Lord far longer, perhaps, than you have. It looks like inviting guests and new members into our homes so that we can get to know them better. It looks like sending a note of encouragement to a brother or sister in Christ who is discouraged. It looks like interacting and mingling with church members who maybe outside of being together in this room, you would have absolutely nothing in common with. But taking that extra effort to get to know someone because you both have the Spirit of God residing in your heart. Maybe you would want to leave the community group that you've been in for maybe 30 or 40 years and just go to a different community group for a season. And get to know the people in that class so that you can better know your brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for them. If you're frustrated, perhaps, that you don't know people in the church, you'll have to take the initiative to get to know people in your church. One of the easiest ways to do that is come stand by me Sunday morning from about 8.30 to 10 o'clock. I'll name every single person that walks in. And you can get to know them that way. So you have to think creatively. You have to maybe think outside of the box. Shake it up a little bit. Do whatever it takes to get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ. John says that if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Now loving one another is difficult. But if we are doing it, John says, God is abiding in us because it's only the work of the Holy Spirit that can help us to love one another as we should anyways. I cannot love you the way that John is talking about here unless the Holy Spirit resides in my heart. 
Because you are some messed up people. And you think I'm a messed up person. So outside of the Holy Spirit, we will not love each other the way that John wants us to. Now John doesn't mean in this passage that we are perfect when we love. Think of the context of this letter. John has been saying over and over again, just because you're in Christ does not mean that you don't sin and that you're perfect. So what does he mean here? It means that the love of God finds its fullest expression when the people of God respond to the gospel by loving one another and extending that love not only to those within the church, but those outside the walls of the church as well. So through the work of loving our brothers and sisters, whom we might not normally love, and through loving lost people who think differently than us in many ways, we are actually allowing the fruit of the Spirit of love to sanctify us more into the image of Christ. See, in the Bible, there's a story of a man who sacrificed his own preferences to spend time with people who were not like him. He spent time with people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different religious backgrounds. He fully invested in a group of 12 men who regularly acted in ways that were contrary to what he taught them. He washed their feet as a sign of service to these men. And when this individual needed his 12 followers the most, they all ran away. They all bailed on him. Nowhere to be seen. And his response to that betrayal was willingly dying for those men in their place, even though they were the ones who were guilty of sin and rebellion. You see, when John tells us to love one another, he's not asking us to do anything that Jesus himself did not already do far better. If you want an example of someone who loved fully and perfectly to a group of people that didn't deserve it in the least, it's our Savior. So if Jesus can love people that are not like Him, which, by the way, is everyone, because He is perfect, He is God in the flesh, if Jesus can stoop down on His knees and wash the dirty feet of the men who would ultimately betray him and claim that they don't even know him, certainly, through the power of his Holy Spirit, we can learn to love one another and love lost people around us. The type of love that John is challenging us with here, if we could ever achieve this perfectly, which we can't, but if we could ever come even close to this, do you realize how incredibly attractive this type of love would be to lost people in our community? We always say that the church is the gospel made visible to the community. So when we wash one another's feet, when we lay down our preferences and our opinions for the sake of the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the world will take notice. They will want to know more about why we choose to follow after this Jesus and gather in a room of people that we might not even agree with on every single issue. And we will say the only reason we can do it is because Jesus has changed our lives. And we want to faithfully serve after him. 
So if you're here today and you're not in Christ, come. Be a part of a community. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Christ. And come join us misfits. And if you are in Christ, let me challenge you to don't keep this concept of love vague. Make it objective. Practically ask yourself, how can I better love my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, and how can I better practically love my lost neighbor, my lost coworker, the lost kids on my kids' ball team? What can I do to demonstrate the love of Christ through how I live my life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John's word in this passage. We now ask that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only he could do, which is allow this word to take root in our hearts, that we would all evaluate our hearts and learn to love one another the way John encourages us to do here. If there are any that are not in Christ, I pray that your spirit would convict them of sin, that they would turn from their sin and put their faith in you so that they can be reconciled to you, a holy God. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.